even if you don't program as a professional software engineer, just being able to kind of understand and speak the language, like just opens up so many doors. It opens up understanding. You're less afraid of change. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. Today we have Travis Truitt, who's the CEO of Ambition, which offers a fantasy football style approach to motivating sales teams. Travis, how's it going? Pretty good, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so Travis Truitt, born and raised in Knoxville, Tennessee. I currently live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where um, I started the company Ambition. A little bit about me, big rock climber, snow skier, avid traveler, avid reader. And a little bit about Ambition would be, we actually got our start, as Eric mentioned earlier, we kind of literally, almost as like a joke, adapted fantasy football to the work environment, basically just allowing teams to organize or allowing employees to organize into teams, compete week to week across seasons, going into a playoff, and it ended up being a big hit. We were able to drive a lot of growth and productivity within a company. And since then, we've kind of expanded out to be you know, an overall productivity platform with goals and gamification and scorecards and everything. Awesome. That's great. And how's the company doing today? Uh, really well, actually. So we are nine people. You know, we have now kind of hit a lot of milestones in terms of, you know, we started this company about two and a half, three years ago. And, you know, we, we've kind of always focused on mid-market and larger companies. And so the growth has definitely been kind of like slower in the beginning. You know, it takes, you know, your product has to be at a certain bar to be able to serve larger customers. And, you know, our first customer was 400 people. Um, or 400 licenses. So, you know, a lot of learning there. But, you know, really what's been exciting is we've been able to basically triple revenue in the last six months. Um, you know, we're scaling, you know, we've scaled past kind of like the million dollar run rates and now kind of have our eyes on what it looks like to go from a million to 10 million. And um, yeah, you know, just couldn't be more excited about where we're at, what we've built and the team that we're putting together. Awesome. And what do revenues look like today? Just ballparks? Yeah, I mean, I would just say, you know, like lower seven figures, you know, we've kind of, it's been interesting. We focus on product for a very long time. It actually is, in a lot of ways, why we moved from, we went out to Silicon Valley to participate in Y Combinator. We moved back to Chattanooga, you know, kind of with the sole intent that it's cheaper and less distractions and it allows us to focus on product as opposed to rushing sales prematurely. And so what we've basically done is in the last two and a half years grown, um, organically, word of mouth, customer referrals. Now we're at this point where, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, seven figures and getting to eight. And uh, yes, that's kind of where we're at today. Got it. And how many rounds of funding did you raise? So we raised a seed round and, you know, in kind of, um, you know, modern times, what that really means, I guess, is that we, we raised several, I guess, rounds that kind of really we call a seed round. We basically raised 
$650,000 from Chattanooga investors. That was the first money in. Then we went out to the Valley. We raised, I guess what you would kind of call our proper seed round from firms like Google Ventures and SV Angel and Redpoint Ventures. And since then, we've taken some funding, some smaller checks from people that have been really excited about our mission and that, you know, wanted to be a part of the ride. And we felt like there was a mutual fit there. But yeah, that's kind of where we're at. We, you know, at this point, we are basically just like we grow with break-even profitability. So, you know, we're still kind of determining what it looks like to be either a Series A company or a profitable company. And so good place to be. And that's where we're at today. Yeah. The reason why I asked about the, the funding is because I, I think a lot of companies or a lot of people think, hey, you know, I'm going to go raise a Series A and move to the Valley and move as quickly as possible. But you guys decided, hey, you know, we can take this, you know, one step at a time and we don't need to jump into things too quickly. Right. Is that kind of the, the thinking? Exactly. And, you know, I look at it as, you know, like engineering, you know, you have this classic problem of pre-optimization of basically saying, you know, what's let's build a product or let's build an infrastructure. Let's, you know, invest the time for where we want to be in five years. And, you know, obviously you need to focus on where you are today and where you need to get to tomorrow, next week and next month. And we kind of do the same thing with our company. And we basically said, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons as to why we, you know, maybe should be in Silicon Valley if we have, you know, 50 to 100 people and we're really needing to scale and take this global and higher world-class you know, VPs. But at this point, as a startup where we're working toward and kind of cementing product market fit, where we, you know, are in survival mode, like money is, you know, extremely important to us and we want to grow in a methodical and safe manner, then I think Chattanooga or, you know, a city like this makes perfect sense. So yeah, again, I just look at it as like stages and just like how you want to hire a VP of sales for, you know, the stage of company you are today. I look at it as you want to you want your startup to live in a place that correlates to the scale of where you are today as a company. I love it. Just so the audience can understand better around the around the business itself, can you share like a case study where a company has really used ambition and kind of taken off from there? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times the case study for ambition really comes down to a couple things. One is a larger organization that has several hundred salespeople and they basically are just wanting to drive transparency and accountability. So they're basically just saying like, look, like we've scaled this company, you know, we might be a little complacent. We might not have all of the visibility we need or we want, you know, we've kind of, you know, growth solves all problems, but now growth is starting to taper off and we need to kind of really get a better handle around our mechanics. And so we go in, we deploy ambition. Uh, Basically what happens is the executive team will build out scorecards for each different like employee role. So, you know, like, account executives, SDRs, customer support, account management. And then once they have these scorecards, not only do they have the transparency and accountability on a real-time basis across all their different data systems, so, you know, enterprise phone systems, CRM, revenue system, you know, all of that, but they also kind of have these ways to say, okay, this transparency is showing us that our people are here. We need to get them to here. So now let's deploy some gamification, let's set some goals, let's do everything in between. Another common case study would be, you know, they just purchased something like Salesforce. They're wanting to drive adoption and utilization. Ambition is a more fun way to kind of drive activity around a certain target or goal or system. And then I would say, you know, another target is saying, hey, we are at 10 or 20 people. We figured out our system. Now we need to scale it in a predictable way. And ambition basically allows us to build out, you know, these scorecards, basically these success templates, it allows us to kind of manage, you know, like productivity and 
let's deploy this before it's too late and then scale and actually scale in a, in a way that makes sense and in a way where we're actually driving the right kinds of behavior. So that's pretty typical for us. Awesome. I love it. And I, I, heard, uh, I heard a Slack sound over there. So do you guys integrate with Slack too? We do actually, and sorry, I just um, I just closed that out. No worries, no worries. Yeah, so we're actually doing some beta testing right now with Slack in terms of being able to pipe accolades in ambi- or accolades from ambition. Like you know, we track some really cool things, like when employees are streaking on a benchmark. So, for example, hey, you have hit your you know demo set for the week benchmark of ten for the last fourteen weeks in a row. Or, you know, you've just now set the company all-time record for phone calls for a given day. You just won this challenge. All sorts of stuff like that. We're experimenting with Slack and Chatter and, you know, just being able to connect really cool, positive things that employees are doing to, you know, the outside world or to the, you know, to the company so that they can be recognized for their achievements. That's cool. So is it more like a scoreboard? Because when I think about fantasy football, I think about selecting, you know, stars from each team and going head-to-head with people. Yeah. So the way, you know, to be honest, ambition is pretty multifaceted. So it's kind of basically what happens is you, a company spins up, let's say, you know, acme.ambition.com. Employees log in. They basically see a kind of like a scoreboard slash scorecard. Basically, here's what I need to do on a daily basis. Here's what I need to do on a weekly basis, monthly basis. So, you know, we, we do a really good job of tracking leading indicators, lagging indicators, and then the cross section, which is productivity. And then from there, you also, you basically have widgets. And so you'll have like a competition widget of, Hey, you're in, you know, team alpha and you guys are playing team Bravo. And, you know, here's the score chart. Here's the projections. You know, you're five and one. They're, you know, two and three. So you should really kind of win this game. You know, at this current pace, you're going to be a second seed in the playoffs. Walsh will show, show goals. Hey, Travis, by the way, you know, your revenue target for the quarter is this. And then, you know, we'll show just like overall stack ranking. You know, hey, for the given day, your productivity scores this. So it's kind of a, a multifaceted, very holistic view as an employee of everything around their their productivity, their activity, their engagement within a company. I love it. Okay. And so how does pricing work for something like this? Yeah, so it's pretty, you know, standard SaaS, basically per person per month. Um, and, you know, our prices um, start at $60 per person. Um, that basically gets you like the full platform. And then obviously with, you know, contract length and company size, we're able to discount down from there. And, you know, the exciting thing is we've been able to prove really, really strong ROI, uh, which, you know, makes selling at a relatively high price point um, easier to do. We actually had a case study for a logistics company. That's kind of where we got our start. So basically warehouses of people that are moving freight from point A to point B across the country. And we're actually able to show that with their company, each employee was making about $425 of revenue on a given month. So basically they were seeing an ROI of like six X on ambition, which is super exciting. Wow. Okay. What does that, I mean, what does that number look like per seat? Yeah, so it's, it's $60 per person per month. So, like, you know, in a given company, yeah. So generally, you know, our contract values are going to be a little bit bigger. You know, our sales cycles are gonna be a little bit slower, but, you know, focusing on these mid market and above companies, the best part about it is basically like, you know, we sell, we integrate, and then they're customers for life. Like our churn has been negative in terms of, you know, when somebody signs up for ambition, generally it might be like a department or a division. And then in, you know, 12 to 18 months, the entire company is on board. Wow. Okay. And you mentioned negative churn. Do you guys have any, you know, upsells, cross-sells included? That's actually something we're working on. You know, our product, one of the things that we have experimented with a lot in the past, and we're really kind of finally starting to to, you know, 
build out the system in always the right way is basically how do we productize ambition? How do we, you know, how do we basically automate being able to get 10 people on? And then how do we upsell into a hundred people? And then how do we, you know, kind of kick that over to onsite visits to get that up to a thousand. That's something that's kind of what's exciting is that's our really our big goal and project for, you know, the remaining half of the year. And, you know, there's a lot of revenue to unlock there, which is exciting because, again, a lot of our sales functions have been, I mean, really at this point organic. It's really been like people reaching out to us and saying, hey, what is it, you know, what's it going to take for us to get our customer support um, department on as opposed to us, you know, in a lot of ways doing what we need to do is just saying, hey, by the way, let's get your customer service department on. So we see that as a really good sign of things to come. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. I was just trying to back into how, you know, basically the, the question is how do you go get to negative churn? You know, oftentimes people will talk about cross sales, upsells, and you guys are on your way there, but it's crazy that you guys already have negative churn. And that's just a fact. Do you, I, I think, I guess the question would be, you know, what do you think is contributing to the negative churn you have right now? Is it just a great product? Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to our product. So I would say this, it's kind of interesting. Our product is when we built it from day one, we built it for the employee. And, you know, we really kind of focused on like, how do we make an employee's life, you know, more, in a, in a lot of ways, more fun. Like, and we, you know, we go back to this, this kind of motto we have This basically, you know, life is too short for work to suck. Like if you think about it, you know, the average American spends the, the majority of their waking life at work. And, you know, most of the time their emotion toward work ranges from misery to apathy. If we can move the needle just a little bit, then that's a really, really big deal. And so we basically started with the rep. And I think what that's meant for us is that while sometimes it's easier to provide, you know, fancy dashboards for executives and managers, because they're the ones that are writing the checks and they're the ones that, you know, if you can sell them, then, you know, they'll champion it for you. We focused on a relatively harder sell and basically saying, we're going to make this awesome for your employees. We're really going to be able to drive the employee experience at your company or, you know, increase your culture coefficient, which sometimes people shy away from that. But, you know, the right progressive people, when they buy that and their employees are really happy and their employees are like literally talking about ambition and talking about how it's kind of changed the way that they view their their role in, in the company and how they view how gamification gives them like a clear path of like what it takes to be successful here then, you know, it, it spreads to a company, it spreads to different departments. And, you know, that's why we've been able to kind of have more and more people, you know, that are already signed up, basically say, how do we buy more licenses? And so, yeah, I, I think it goes down to product. I think it goes down to philosophy and mindset and not optimizing for high growth too early, but really optimizing on the the experience. And again, kind of going back to saying something earlier, like the exciting thing is I you know, I still think that we've really only scratched the surface. Like, you know, we're still all potential energy. Like we're not even really realizing a lot of the things that we have on our, our roadmap. I love it. And I love that you guys started with, with salespeople first because it's very quantifiable. So I, I'm imagining, you know, this would work for salespeople, customer service people, uh, trying to bring down tickets, marketing people too. What other roles uh, does Ambition serve right now? And what are you guys aiming to serve? Yeah, I mean, really, at the end of the day, any metric-based employee, you know, can use ambition to basically better track their productivity and how they can be more efficient. And so, you know, our start is going to be more transactional inside sales because that's the easiest segment to prove ROI. With that said, though, we've already kind of expanded into field sales. We've expanded into customer support. We have several very large customer support departments all over the globe that are using ambition. You know, customer success functions, account management functions, 
you know, we have like real estate offices and insurance offices and just, you know, it's been really, really cool to see. And, and I think that what becomes really, really valuable is that, you know, going back to the, you know, any metric based employee at the end of the day, most employees in the workforce, they can basically say, or at least their bosses can say, if you do ABC on a daily basis, and if you can achieve XYZ on a monthly basis, then you're going to be successful in this company. More often than not, you're going to be successful. And so really with ambition, if you boil down what we do, even if you strip away the really engaging aspects of gamification and of our goal system, it comes down to defining that success template for your employees. And then basically what we're literally able to put employees on a graph and say, if the X axis is how hard you're working and the Y axis is how smart you're working on a per person basis, here's basically a graph showing your productivity. Like I'm literally imagine it as like a Gartner magic quadrant, except you as an employee get to see where you're at. And that just becomes this like insanely powerful and intuitive visualization. And so, yeah, I mean, we have basically going back to your question, we have companies where you might have like 12 different types of employees that are all able to be normalized and put on this graph. And so really the sky's the limit there. It gets really, really exciting. Great. You know, it's just going through my head right now. I think this is a no brainer for, for everyone. Uh, but you guys are, you, you guys are starting with mid market right now. So just for the audience to know what size is, is a mid market company typically? Yeah. So, I mean, typically for us and everybody has their definition, you know, like I think that like, you know, uh, like Microsoft would probably consider mid market to be like 5,000 seats and up, you know, really for us, we look at it as the 75 to hundred seat mark is really like our sweet spot just because we found that like they get a lot of benefit because they're at that point where they're scaling. They've really, really figured out their repeatable process. They, you know, have the budget and the need to basically say it's really, really important for us to have a system in place for all these people. I would say overall, though, to get success on ambition, it really just varies. Startups and SMBs are kind of a mixed bag. And I would say that if you are a startup or a small company that is selling a a relative commodity in that it is a known entity, you basically it's just a matter of you're competing on price or you're competing on getting in front of people and there's a system in place, like you know what it takes, then ambition is going to work really, really well for you. If you are more of a product education cell or a solution cell and you know you're really trying to figure out your market, figure out your positioning, then ambition isn't going to work as well because basically ambition, if you know what it takes to be successful, ambition is the perfect platform. If you're still figuring it out, then you know, the, the gains are going to be, you know, marginal. So that's, that's kind of where we found that mid market works the best for us. So basically any company that has reached product market fit, they're probably a good fit for ambition. That was much more concise than what I just said. <laughs> cool. So yeah, I want to go a little, um, I guess we can go a little deeper here. Um, so tell us about one big struggle you faced while growing this business or any business. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually, you know, it's funny. I'm writing down any company with product, Market fit can use ambition. I love that. There's your headline for the homepage. Exactly. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I would say biggest struggles. I mean, obviously there's been so many. You know, a couple that come to mind with ambition would be number one, I would say we we slash I, we outsourced customer success and customer support too early. I think that our really I think our third hire was customer support such success? You know, we kind of rolled up into one hat. And I think that, you know, it was, a, it was like a move of, okay, this is efficient. Let's go ahead and get in somebody to own it. Let's, um, 
it just makes sense. And really what ended up happening was that our customer support person ended up leaving to start his own company, which is great. But what it kind of forced me to do is basically re-own customer support and success and basically remove the middleman. And basically, you know, what's, what was funny is that this happened a while ago. And I, I can't even imagine at this point, because, again, we're only nine people. Like, I can't even imagine hiring somebody again for probably another, like, five to six hires. Because basically, I've gone from hearing what customers are saying and needing from somebody to now directly interfacing with customers, asking really good and targeted questions around not only what are they saying, but what are they needing. And then myself being an engineer, half the time, I'm able to go in myself, directly fix their problem, and then basically say, is your problem fixed? Do you foresee any issues with this? No? Okay, done. And so I've basically been able to systematically reduce any kind of like ticketing needs or customer chat needs in a lot of ways down to zero. And so I think that that's been really important for us. Whereas when I look at our first year or two, I kind of regret in some ways, like not owning it when I should have. And then another just especially brutal pain point for me is kind of trying to chase the holy grail, silver bullet, whatever you want to call it, of partnerships early. And we had some really sexy partnerships, one in particular that I spent a ton of my time and energy and effort on, which was basically working with it. It was like going to end up being this really big real estate play. We were going to have like 600 real estate offices, this association on board on ambition. And it was going to be extremely lucrative. And it was going to be this amazing, you know, like deal that we could put together that we could leverage to, you know, anybody and everybody across the world in terms of, you know, large associations with, you know, hundreds and not thousands of members. And, you know, we were just way too early. We were in over our heads I basically wasn't focusing on individual customers and yeah, I just, I think back and I just wish I could get, you know, like three months of my life back. So I would say, I would say those. And then another thing I would say is that, you know, to each his own on this one, but I spent the first two years basically almost from like a, like macho standpoint, refusing to take vacations and basically just like working pretty much close to seven days a week. And I learned that by actually forcing myself to, and, you know, to be honest, to this day, I would still consider them a workation, but by forcing myself, basically every quarter, I literally leave the country. It might be for three days, it might be for seven days, but I'll leave the country, I'll go to a place that is just insanely different and inspiring and new and, you know, out of my comfort zone. And every time I come back, I feel like my productivity is at an all-time high. I come back with new and fresh ideas. I come back just ready to roll. And so, you know, a big mistake of mine was thinking that to be successful, you have to work every day for years and years and years. And, you know, there's some people that that's what they do and it's worked for them. But for me, I found that those breaks are insanely important. I totally agree with that. And that's something I've been starting to do more and more of. So I might have some questions for you after this or it might even be another show. Who knows? Yeah, but yeah, I totally agree with that. I used to just work all the time, but uh, even doing the, even doing the workations can be can be a game changer. Now, I think one really important thing I, I, talking about partnerships. You know, I actually just have a I have a friend that's just going gung ho on partnerships right now for a company that he's at, and it just makes zero sense to me right now because you know they haven't figured out how to grow their own thing. They haven't talked to customers enough to you know figure out how to how to you know take things into their own hands and control their own destiny because. When you're doing these partnerships, you know, basically they'll do things when they want to do things and it'll be on, on their time and it has maximum benefit for them. So I, I guess I, I love you sharing that story and I think uh, a lot of people need to take heed to that. How old, how old are you right now? 
29. 29. Okay. What's one piece of advice you'd give to your 23-year-old self? 23-year-old self. That's a really good question. So I think – so I'm a self-taught engineer and memory serves me correctly. I started to learn how to program at 25. And so to be honest, I would go back. You know, I was was very fortunate that I, you know, at 23 – uh, at 23, I think I was living in – at this time, honestly, I was living in Austria. I was rock climbing like all over Europe. I – you know, I, I've been very fortunate to be able to travel, to live in some really cool places, to be able to do a lot of things. I would say at 23, I, I, I wish I would have just learned how to program because, you know, kind of my anecdote for that is that my – you know, I look at it as, you know, obviously we are now surrounded by technology and it is, you know, only becoming more prevalent even though the saturation at this point has got to be close to like 98%. And even if you don't program as a professional software engineer, just being able to kind of understand and speak the language, like just opens up so many doors. It opens up understanding. You're less afraid of change. And, you know, my brother, he's six years younger than me. So he is now 23, 24. And I got him, I begged him and begged him and begged him basically a, a complete broken record, a very annoying broken record to learn how to program. I think he finally picked it up at 20. He just graduated college. He's making more money than any of his friends. He's opened up so many doors. He's, it's just, I don't know. I, I couldn't be more bullish on for the majority of people out there, you know, learning how to be quick, dirty, and dangerous with, you know, basic skills. So yeah, that's probably what I would say. Cool. And how did you, how did you teach yourself how to code? So it was right before Code Academy came out. So I was actually, you know, probably one of the last people like on the planet or at least in the United States, like actually learn through like reading books and, uh, you know, not using something that's interactive and gamified. Uh, I think, I think literally if I, I think it was like learnpython.org had some really good tutorials. Uh, but yeah, otherwise I, I was literally just buying O'Reilly books and just going through exercises. And, you know, the first month is terrible because you're just trying to remember the syntax the first three months is frustrating because you have no clue how you're going to go from a glorified calculator game to, you know, a dynamic interactive web page. But, you know, six months, I feel like you are starting to do things where they have real world potential. And then a year goes by and you're starting to create basic things that, you know, are are beneficial to you and your friends or family. And then, you know, now a couple of years in, I feel like in a lot of ways I could build at least MVPs of anything I would ever need to. So that the power there is just incredible because I can remember having to go to computer science departments, you know, like before I learned how to program and just beg engineers to join me or to, you know, work with me. And that's, you know, it's, that's brutal because every business guy's doing that. So, you know, that was kind of the catalyst for me learning how to do it. And now I just, I can't imagine, you know, not being able to have this skill. Follow-up question to that. When you first started, let's say the first year, how many hours do you think you were spending a day? Oh, I was obsessed. I, it, it was, in a lot of ways, it was funny. It's probably, it's probably, it's probably the one thing in my life that I've put the most effort and energy into, you know, going through, it's just crazy to think like going through school, you know, elementary, middle, high school, college, I wasn't really passionate about anything. Like I, you know, I was a good test taker. I knew how to get A's and B's, but I just, I was doing, it was just, you know, I was just doing it to take a test and to pass a class. Like I wasn't, I never had the mindset of like, what am I going to get out of this? How is this going to better me? And so with programming, 
I don't know. I just, I, I mean, I was at the point where it was just like every night, every weekend in the morning on my lunch break, I was just constantly working through it. And, you know, it's just the best part about it is that it's become so actionable. And yeah, I mean, I I will say that I dedicated a lot of time. It wasn't something that was, you know, two hours a week and now you're going to be able to build, you know, really cool websites. But if it's your passion or if you're just serious about, you know, really having a foothold in the tech scene, you've got to do it. And, you know, it's worth it. I, I would, you know, if you look at, for most positions, if you look at, you know, getting an MBA or taking that three years, whatever you want to call it, and learning how to program, I seriously think that you'd be a more attractive and more productive candidate to a company being able to be a business guy and program than having another degree. Totally agree with that. All right. What's one must-read book you recommend to everyone? Must-read book? You know, it's kind of funny with that. I'm not. I'm going to give you not a must-read book, but I'm going to say that I I read a lot of history, and specifically, I read a lot of military history. And the one thing I like about military history, just as a genre, is that you know, as an entrepreneur, it is easy for me to go home and to be stressed out and think about how much I hate my life or hate my sales pipeline or you know my competitors, whatever you want to call it. But when you read military history and you read about like being in Verdun in World War One, you realize how you just you just reaffirm how insanely easy your life is and it just gives you perspective. And so I would I guess my answer to that question would be for any entrepreneur, read military history and it's hard to go to bed stressed, which you know I think is a is a big net positive. Okay. And what's what's one book around that that you can recommend? Yeah, well, one book around that. Okay, so I just read this unbelievable book by uh, Michael Ayer, um, H E R R, who actually just recently passed away. He was a he was a war correspondent for Esquire, and he wrote this book called Dispatches. And basically, it was him as a war correspondent in Vietnam for I think about eighteen months. And it is an insanely good book, probably one of the better books I've read. You know, especially from a correspondent's point of view, the way he writes is insanely raw, but well-written, a lot of really good analogies, really good metaphors. He actually ended up, I believe, co-writing both Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket. And I mean, it's hard. I I honestly think that I like stopped and cried maybe two times, two times while reading it because it's just like thinking about what, you know, these young men, 20 years old were going through. And I think about my problems and I'm just like, I have no reason but to you know, have a smile on my face and just be the happiest guy alive. That's super powerful. And I actually just one click ordered that. So thank you for that. Yes. You're going to love it. It's it's honestly, when you're done reading it, call me because I'd love to discuss it with you. Yeah, absolutely. So Travis, I mean, this has been fantastic. A lot to take away from this. What's the best way for people to find you online? Yeah. So if you want to contact me, travisatambition.com is probably gonna be the easiest way. I, my Twitter handle is T.D. Truett, so T-D-T-R-U-E-T-T. To be honest, though, my Twitter game is pretty weak. And then I would say, you know, if you're interested in Ambition and want to learn more, I'd love for you to go to ambition.com, um, read more about our product, see our case studies, and then there's a big green um, scheduled demo button where you can talk to either me or our sales team and get started. Awesome. Thanks so much, Travis. Absolutely. Have a good one. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week, and remember to take action and continue growing.